Well, good morning. The last time I spoke, I think I said that uh, I was going to do my very best to stretch you in your thinking and to maybe challenge you in a few ways. So I intend to do that again this morning. So for that, once again, I'll say I'm sorry and you're welcome. And we'll see how it goes. Um, Can we kill the blue? Just so we don't wash it out a little bit. Before I dive in, I'd just like to pray. Will you pray with me? Lord God, thank you so much for this day that we can enjoy together as your, your body, as your family, Lord. I just ask, God, that you would take my thoughts and like the loaves and the fishes, God, that you would, um, that you would just multiply them many, many times. That you would, use, uh, you would use this morning to challenge us to stretch us maybe in some ways, but also to encourage us. And uh, Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity to share what you have uh, placed on my heart. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. So, this morning, I'd like to take kind of a time out in the series that we've been going through the last few weeks with, uh, with Dad in Ephesians. And to talk about something that has come up here and there in the last two weeks, and that is the idea of the supernatural, of miracles, and just the supernatural being a big part of what what we believe and and a big part of the foundation of our faith. Because it's my belief that we as the church, capital C, in a large part, don't have the right definitions when it comes to faith and miracles. And we don't understand how the Bible teaches about faith and how it interacts and intersects with miracles. So I'd like to take some time this morning to hopefully set the record straight, maybe clear up some bad definitions, if if any of us have those, but also to hopefully build your confidence that what the Bible means when it says faith and what the Bible talks about and how it integrates miracles into the big picture hopefully should be incredibly encouraging to us as believers today. So we're going to talk about that. But it also occurred to me that next week is the 15th anniversary of September 11th. And I bring that up for this reason. The ideas that we're going to talk about this morning are much older than September 11th, 2001. But it was on that day that a big cultural shift happened and faith and people of faith moved from something that was largely considered quaint and that's nice for you to dangerous. People of faith, people who believe in a God and in supernatural things became dangerous about 15 years ago. And on that day, some very old ideas were breathed new life in our culture. And for the last 15 years, they have been seeping down into our culture. Children have been raised for the last 15 years with these ideas baked into the very foundation of what they, what they are taught about the way the world is. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians and a lot of churches have allowed these ideas to seep in as well. And until and unless we get rid of these bad ideas, 
and we challenge them and we get right thinking on them, we will never be the church as God intended it to be. And we will never live the confident lives that Christ intends for us to live. So we're going to take a look at those, and then we're going to see how it ties into some passages in Scripture that I think really reinforce the point. But since I can never say anything better than C.S. Lewis did, we're going to start with, uh, with him. C.S. Lewis said, The most dangerous ideas in a society are not the ones being argued, the ones being assumed. The most dangerous ideas are the ones nobody talks about because everyone takes them for granted. So what I want to do is take a few moments and look at three very, I think, dangerous ideas that everyone in our culture takes for granted. So I really believe that we've bought into some cultural assumptions. And you know me, I like audience participation. So here's how this is going to work. Uh, This is going to be a primer. So this is just to get the blood flowing, get everything in, and then we'll dive in, right? But I'm going to show you an image, and as soon as you see it, I want you to shout out for me what you see. Fair enough? Does that sound... Is it too early for this? All right, okay. Here we go. One, two, three. Oh, okay. Bird, duck, rabbit. Are you sure? (laughs) Oh, oh, okay. This is a silly exercise, but it's just to illustrate the point that maybe your first inclination to something might not always be correct, or maybe it could be interpreted in a different way. So we're going to take a look at some of these assumptions that our culture makes. And again, you may, you may even make yourself. So I want us to think through them, all right? So this is where the audience participation will come in from time to time. So first of all, here's the first assumption that our culture makes. Only what can give us real knowledge. Science. Science is how we know things, right? Because we can test it, we can repeat it, we can do experiments, and that is the basis for how we know things. And if it doesn't come from science, it's something else, but it's not knowledge. I'm going to show a quick clip from a movie to illustrate the point, because this thinking has made its way all the way down into children's movies, actually, So we're going to take a look at that now. All right. Nice uplifting, right? You see this all the way in the beginning, right, of the movie. This is like seven minutes into the movie. What what does Sour Kangaroo say to Horton? If you can't see it, hear it, feel it, touch it, then what? Doesn't exist. That is that cultural assumption at work being taught to children. Now, again, think that the movie ultimately would challenge that assumption in some ways, but the fact is that it's there. And she is presented in the movie as the, the maker of the rules, the one who keeps order, the one who keeps that you know society of standards running. So when it comes to this, I mean, and notice what she said, too, about the, the children, that... In a sense, what's being said here is this idea that, that people of faith or people who believe in things that they can't see, hear, and feel are maybe that's okay for them even to a certain standpoint. But don't you dare make it public. Don't you dare poison the minds of children with fairy tales like that, with your primitive, backwards, Iron Age beliefs. Because we know better now. 
We have science. And science tells us that things like that aren't real. And we know this. Has anyone heard that before? Okay. Problem is, there's, there's some big problems with that way of thinking. So we're going to take a look at those. First, this statement, only science gives us knowledge. Does anyone have any idea what's wrong with that statement? Just right on the outset? I like to use a phrase, um, anytime I hear an idea that I'm not sure about, or a statement about reality, about the way things actually are, my, my phrase that I run through my head is, does it eat its own cooking? In other words, does it follow its own rules? So the big first thing we need to ask is, if only science gives us knowledge, that statement, did you arrive at that statement scientifically? What experiment did you conduct to arrive at that statement? How do you know that? through science. You don't. That's the problem. This isn't a scientific statement. It's a philosophical statement. It's an assumption that starts right at the beginning, and then we build on top of it. Well, the question is, first of all, that doesn't work because you can't, you can't arrive at it by its own rules. So that, that's a problem right in and of itself. And then the second thing is, the fact is that there are plenty of things that we know apart from science. Things like morality. What experiments do you have to do to tell you that mass murder or rape is wrong? We just know. We know those things, and we know that knowing those things crosses all cultural boundaries from all places and all times. There's a handful of things that, regardless of cultural and social norms, if you study anthropology, it's, it's fascinating how all people groups, there's a very small amount of things that everyone universally agrees, now that's wrong. How do we know that? It seems like it's just baked in on the ground floor. Things like emotion. You know how you're feeling right now. How do you know that? Well, that's a different question, but the point is you don't know that by, by pouring your emotions into a test tube and running some experiments. You have a direct experience with how you're feeling right now. Now there's, I would say, maybe 150 individuals in there. So let's just say there's 150 minds in this room, all thinking thoughts, all at the same time. Out of those 150 minds, you know exactly which one of those 150 is yours. How do you know that? You just do. You know that you're here in this place, in Basha High School's auditorium, and that you're not plugged into the matrix. How do you know that? It's possible that you could be wrong. It's like, you know, I mean, we, we don't want to say it's, it's logically possible that you could be wrong, but you know that you're not actually plugged into the matrix, that you're right here. How do you know that? It's not through science. So what I want to suggest to you is that science gives us one type of knowledge, and that what it does give us is incredibly value, but valuable. But to paint science out like it's the whole pie and there is no other game in town is just simply false. And you can look at your own experiences of everyday life to prove that that isn't the case. You know plenty that you don't arrive at scientifically. This is a cultural assumption that we need to challenge. And if we've bought into it and we kind of lean toward, well, there's science and then there's everything else, maybe we need to take a step back and think about that a little bit more. This cultural assumption leads directly into our next. So we'll take a look at that now. 
if we can't know something with scientific certainty, then we can't say that something is true. It's only true... This is your turn. It's only true what? For, for you, for me. Has anyone heard that? Well, that's true for you. Whatever that means. right? It's either true or it isn't. But that flows directly from... So whatever it is that we think we know about God, about spirituality, about the spiritual world, but we can't touch it, we can't hear it, we can't see it, well, if we can't do those things, then we can't test it scientifically. So it's not knowledge. It's not true. It's something else. Whatever that is. And in our culture, that something else is basically boiled down to preference. If I believe A about the world and you believe B about the world, we live in a society now where people have stopped having conversations about, well, is it A or is it B? One of us is clearly wrong. And now we live in a society where the conversation then shifts into, well, that's fine. You can believe A, I can believe B, and we'll both go on our merry way, and let's just say that they're both true for us. Because it avoids conflict, because it seems tolerant, but in fact it's not. And the reality is there's only one reality. So what do we do about this? Once truth becomes flexible, moldable, open to interpretation... Can anyone think of any other things that become open to interpretation? Once truth is just up for grabs, there's some big ones. Morality. Right and wrong are not now matters of objective reality. That is absolutely wrong for all peoples for all time. And this is absolutely right no matter what your situation is. Morality now becomes up to the culture, up to the society in which you happen to find yourself. We make the rules. If we define truth, we can decide what's right and what's wrong for us. As a matter of fact, history also becomes open to interpretation. You ever heard the phrase, history is written by the victors? Well, as it just so happens to turn out that when you study history, especially ancient documents, it turns out that the winners and the losers, while they do embellish how bad they lost, maybe, or how much they won, they generally tend to agree on the big things. And so, if you study it, it's just honestly patently false that history is, is just, we only know that because certain people told it that way, and that's not what really happened. Another thing that is up for grabs is meaning. We live in a society now where when you read a text, you read a, a the book club, the, the number one book club uh, answer or question, they were asked, well, what did that mean to you? What did you get out of that? And as the group who sat in our How to Study the Bible uh, class uh, last week, a couple weeks ago, can tell you, um, what does it mean to you is the absolute wrong question to ask. And it also is not the question to start with. It's the last question that you ask after you've learned what it meant to them. Because there's one interpretation. The author only meant one thing when, when he wrote. And the, the job of the reader is to find out what, not to determine, well, I know he may have meant that, intended that, but I, it means this to me. 
That's a big, big assumption to make, especially when we live in a culture where we treat the Bible as, well, it means whatever we want it to mean, right? And the last thing, and we're seeing this in a big, big way right now, is that when truth becomes flexible, human value, worth, and identity become flexible. There is no more baked into the very core of who we are as human beings and what it means to be human a set of standards, a set of parameters and guardrails that are set around what it means to be a person. Because if we make up the rules, then there's no way to ensure that all people are equal and deserving of the same value and dignity, that human life is not just worth it if we decide it's worth it, and that those people over there aren't worth as much because we don't place as much value on them. If the standard originates with us, there is nothing to stop people from being treated unequally, and there's nothing to stop people from deciding that they can be whatever they feel like being or want to be. We're seeing this play out in our society right now. Right now. In the last couple of years, so much has changed because we have taken it upon ourselves to redefine things as we see fit. Because we believe this as a society. We believe that it's just true for you, and whatever is true for you is true. So you may say, I understand, and as a Christian, I feel like you know that's not good. But in terms of the big picture, if people decide that they want to make some they want to redefine things. What's the big deal? It's a fair question. Uh, and to that, I would just simply say, what if this gentleman decided that it was true for him that that wall wasn't there? I don't think anything would change. He might feel differently about the wall, but reality has a funny way of reasserting itself, no matter what we define. And when we start taking the definitions and the, the way that God has designed things to work in His world and His design, and we start redefining them. We can do that. But reality will reassert itself. It's a little bit like finding furniture in the dark with your bare feet. You can either turn the lights on and you can see the way things actually are, or you can run into the way things actually are on your own. But either way, the way things actually are isn't changing. This is a very painful way to live life. And we're seeing this in our society right now. We're seeing, as, as the most recent issue with the transgender bathrooms, we're seeing progressive schools say, run full bore ahead with that and say, yep, we're going to open up transgender bathrooms. And two weeks after they open it, they have to shut it down and backpedal. You know why? Because reality reasserted itself. People, as we all would say with common sense, duh, claimed that they were transgender so that they could go in a bathroom with uh, people of the opposite gender and try and see things. We all knew that was going to happen because that's the way the world really is, and yet we tried to redefine it, and it, reality pushed back hard. We cannot live this way as a society for long. Reality won't let us. But when it comes to what the Bible means, when it comes to morality, when it comes to truth, Christians have to stand up for the fact that you can't just redefine things that are set 
Because they're set. And they're not set because we say they're set. They're set because of the way that they really are. And God has so ordered them to be that way. Third cultural assumption. Natural explanations are always to be preferred over what? Supernatural explanations. Now, maybe we don't buy into this one quite as much within the church. But I think that there may be a way that we do. But the reason this is so built into our culture is actually this is a very old idea. And remember I said that some of these ideas had new life breathed into them very recently within the last 15 years. But they have been around for a much longer time. Now, I wouldn't be me if I didn't introduce you to some philosophy. I'm sorry if eyes just rolled back in the head and you glazed over, but I promise that it will make sense. We need to understand where this thought came from. This is a very deeply held thought in our society and where we live. It comes from, in part, this lovely gentleman with the great hair. His name is David Hume. He was a Scottish philosopher. He lived in the 1700s. He wrote a very still to this day, impactful uh, treatise book called Of Miracles. Now, David Hume was not a Christian. He didn't like Christians. And he sought out to show how Christians were silly for believing what they believed. And here was how his reasoning went. I want you to try and follow along and see what what would you say to this, because we're going to talk about this. First of all, he defined a miracle as a violation of natural law. Now, how many of you, just show of hands, either have heard that definition, or if someone were to ask you, what's a miracle, might define it in a similar way. The natural laws get broken, or they get bent at least. Okay? Some of us. So this is the starting point for him, that a miracle is a violation of natural law. So he goes on to explain it in this way. He says... Here's how we should base our experience and our knowledge of of things. Current experience should be based on past experience. And not just my past experience, but our collective past experience. And between all of us, we have a lot of past collective experience that we can draw from. So, in all of our collective past experience, if we are able to determine that past experience tells us that dead men don't rise... And we can say that that tells us that with 100% certainty. All of us have experienced that dead men don't rise. Then it follows from that that based on our past experience, therefore any claim that a dead man has risen, we should prefer any natural explanation over believing that a dead man has risen. Could someone check that box for me, please? My computer thinks I'm talking to it. Thank you. Let me see if I have... Yep, I do. Okay. Great. Thank you. So, if past experience tells us dead men don't rise, then when we hear a claim that, hey, a dead man has risen, we should prefer any other explanation over believing that that has actually happened. And he illustrates it like this. He says, think about it. Which is more likely? Is it more probable or likely that the person who told you that misunderstood or didn't, didn't, didn't get their get their facts straight, or maybe saw something they couldn't explain, weren't sure, that they lied, that they're trying to deceive, or that the dead person wasn't actually dead, or that a dead man actually rose from the dead and came back to life. Which one's more likely? 
And I mean, you can, you can answer too. I mean, there, this isn't a trick question. The answer is, any of those are more likely. They just are. So it follows from that for Hume that, therefore, we, should, we are never justified in believing a miracle claim. We should always try and find some other natural explanation to explain it away, because whatever explanation we come up with is going to be way more likely than that a miracle actually happened. Are you tracking with that? Does that make sense? Okay. So, Hume's argument was powerful. I mean, it still impacts how we think as a society today. It's just there, assumed. So, we should talk about it because... As C.S. Lewis said, the things we don't talk about are going to be more dangerous. Hume, for, for his brilliance and his tight reasoning here, has made some very crucial oversights. So we're going to talk about what those are. His first oversight is that that standard for knowing things is very narrow. It's actually overly narrow. And I'll illustrate what I mean by the second point is it destroys our ability to know most of history. So if past experience is what tells us what's likely to have happened now, what do you do with events in history that up to that point in history had never occurred and never will occur ever again in history after that? And I'm not talking about, from a Christian standpoint even, like the resurrection. I'm talking about Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon. I'm talking about the French Revolution. I'm talking about... um, Hitler's Germany. I'm talking about the sinking of the Titanic on its maiden voyage. Things that could never happen and will never happen except for this one point in history. Well, if past experience is the only thing that we use to tell us what's likely to have happened, then if someone tells me the Titanic sank, well, that's never happened before. So I shouldn't believe it. Does that make sense? Way too narrow. Way too narrow. And if you're going to use that as your standard for evaluating miracle claims, you actually have to throw out most of history as well. And you're left with, well, we don't know much, really at all. We can't say that we're certain about it anyway. So another oversight that Hume made, he starts with two assumptions. And we talked about assumptions. Well, he made them two. He starts with the first assumption, miracles don't happen. And as C.S. Lewis pointed out, this is very circular. If you start by saying, we know that this miracle didn't happen because we know that miracles don't happen. Well, the only way you get from there to there is if you already know before you start that all miracle claims are false. But the question is, is this miracle claim false? So if you start with the answer before you ask the question, you're just reasoning in a circle. And that's what he's doing here, right? He's assuming the answer before he asks the question. That doesn't get you anywhere. The other big oversight he makes and the other big assumption that he makes is that all miracle claims are equal because he lumps them all together. And the fact is, folks, all miracle claims are not equal, not even close. Here's a good principle. Anytime you hear about a miracle in the news, in a book, in a movie that gets made from a book, or whether you read about it in Scripture... Every miracle claim is unique. And whether or not that miracle claim should be believed or not needs to be weighed exclusively on the evidence for that miracle claim. The fact that every other miracle up to that point may be false has no bearing on whether this miracle happened. And conversely, if every other miracle up to that point 
has been turned out to be true, it doesn't guarantee that this one is. Miracles need to be weighed on their own evidence and not just all lumped in together because the evidence is wildly, wildly different for, from one miracle claim to the next. And by the way, just as a, a, a sidebar, if, you have, if you're interested in a lot of very fascinating miracle claims in our modern day today, uh, context today, along with eyewitness evidence and other scientific evidence for believing that they actually occurred, a guy named Craig Keener, K-E-E-N-E-R, uh, has a book called Miracles. It's a big old one because there's a lot in it. You might find that encouraging. Hume had one final oversight. And this is the big one for us. He mischaracterizes what Christians believe about resurrection. So let me ask you this. If David Hume were standing here today and he were to say to you, we know that dead men don't naturally rise from the dead. What should you say back to David Hume? I'm hearing murmurings. I'm hearing a lot of different things, actually. Here's what you should say back to David Hume. I agree. Dead men don't naturally rise from the dead. That is not what we believe as Christians. We are not saying that Jesus' cells, by some unknown natural process, spontaneously came back to life and that he reanimated. We are not saying that by any natural process, Jesus came back from the dead. We are saying that God raised Jesus from the dead. That is a supernatural claim. So when, when people say, well, dead men don't naturally rise, or dead men don't come back to life, we say, I agree, dead men don't naturally come back to life. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying God raised Jesus from the dead, and that's a claim of a whole different kind. That's a distinction, a, a nuance, but we have to make it. Because when people say, well, well that just doesn't happen, say, I know. That's why the fact that it happened is kind of a big deal, right? And the other thing that he mischaracterizes is just his definition of a miracle in the first place. We are not saying that this is a violation of natural law. Let me explain. Natural laws, and I'll use gravity for example because it's very familiar. The natural law of gravity, or any other natural law, tells us what would happen if everything was left alone and as is and nothing interfered. The law of gravity tells us what will happen if I hold my hand out and I drop this clicker and nothing else happens. The law of gravity will take over and natural law dictates it will fall and it will hit the stage. But if I reach out and I catch it, I haven't violated the law of gravity at all. The law of gravity is still in effect because it tells us what will happen if no one else interferes. What we're saying about the resurrection, folks, is not that the natural law was violated. We're saying that a free agent intervened and that what would have happened naturally to Jesus didn't happen because God intervened. Does that make sense? It's a huge distinction. Huge distinction. A violation of natural law makes it sound like well, it should have happened, and then everything was suspended, and everything just stopped. But that's not what we're saying happened with the resurrection. 
a free agent intervened and nothing was the laws of the natural laws were perfectly left intact and they were fine they just didn't have a chance to do what they would have done it is so important that we understand what's wrong with these cultural assumptions that are so deeply embedded to what we think and believe for several reasons not the least of which is that it's so important to what we believe as christians but overall these are just bad ideas I hope that you're able to see, at least in part, that these things that people just walk around assuming, they shouldn't be assuming because they're bad ideas. They don't deserve to be believed because they don't hold up on their own merits. So why are we talking about all this? Well, you may, you may be thinking, so you said we've bought into these. And I'm watching these and going, wow, I mean, yeah, I know that our culture has bought into these, but I'm not sure I have. Um, I want to show you one more movie, uh, video clip. All right. We could spend the rest of the day talking about that clip. There's so much in there. Uh, But the definition of faith, as Morgan Freeman portrays it, amounts to what exactly? Based on that, how do you define faith? I just have faith. Maybe my head's in the way. It's kind of a leap. Kind of, a, I wish I may, I wish I might. It's a, it's a hopeful wanting, maybe. If you would define faith in that way, or something similar, you've bought into these cultural assumptions. Because faith is not a matter of knowledge now, it's just a matter of true for me. If truth claims, you're not claiming to know something I don't, are you? Oh, no, no. If truth claims become less than claims of feeling, how I feel is more important, you've bought into these cultural assumptions. If you consider your beliefs private rather than just personal, and that they need to be kept to self, and that's fine for you, but don't you dare bring it out here, you've bought into these cultural assumptions. Our faith is deeply personal. But it cannot be private. C.S. Lewis said, if the resurrection is true, if Christianity is true, then what we believe is of infinite importance. And if what we believe isn't true, then it's of no importance. What it cannot be is moderately important. So what is biblical faith? If it's not that, and I promise you it's not, It is not just blindly walking out and I hope I don't die like in that Indiana Jones scene where he's got that invisible bridge in front of him, right? It is not that. I'll give you two definitions. Jonathan Morrow, who uh, is one of my professors at Biola that I'm uh, working through, he defines faith as active trust in what you have good reasons to believe is true. J.P. Moreland, a Christian philosopher, defines it this way. Biblical faith is trust in God because He has shown Himself to be reliable and trustworthy. It is not this blind leap that we make. And I can prove that to you because there is a formula in the Bible for faith. Faith formula works like this. Powerful evidence is given, usually a miracle or some kind of sign. Based on that, the people gain knowledge of God. And then based on the knowledge of God, they place their belief, their faith, their trust in God because he has shown himself to be trustworthy. And I'll give you some examples. The Egyptian plagues. 
God says, I will deliver you. But before he delivers them, he shows them ten plagues where he completely wipes out the Egyptians' authority and power over them. And he demonstrates to the Egyptians that I am the one true God. On the basis of that, then, the people say, I know that God will deliver us like he has said that he will because I can trust, look at all he's done. And then they believe and they follow Moses out into the wilderness. Once they get out into the wilderness, there's a lot in Exodus, by the way, the Red Sea crossing. And here, specifically, you have um, a couple of verses I'm going to read in Exodus chapter 14. The very, very end is super important here. So, thus the Lord saved Israel that day, and after the Red Sea crossing, from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians. Powerful evidence. They feared the Lord. Knowledge of God caused fear. And they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. There's the, there's the formula. We'll look at a couple more. The fall of Jericho. God says, I want you to go and I will deliver them into your hand and I'll deliver the whole conquest into your hand. But first I want you to do this and then I will make something amazing happen. They do. Jericho falls. They believe they rush in. But what it says after, before they went into Jericho, God placed a ban on looting. So don't take anything. It's all t- committed to me. And it's very interesting that it says right after that in the next chapter that Israel was unfaithful to the Lord. They didn't believe Him. And as a consequence, when they went into their next conquest, they lost. But God had given them a powerful sign and said, trust me, on the basis of what you just saw. And they didn't. And there were consequences. So this works both ways. The miracles of Jesus. I can't give you a scripture reference for this. Read the four Gospels. They're everywhere. But Jesus does miracles and signs. He heals people. He casts out demons. And then on the basis of that, he asks people to believe and place faith in him. And lastly, the resurrection of Jesus. In Romans chapter 3, Paul even picks up on this faith formula. And he's careful to point out that what Jesus has done for us in dying and being raised has allowed us through faith to have eternal life. And that we, are, we need to place our faith, our trust in Jesus. But just as importantly, is in between these two references to we need to have faith, he's careful to point out that when Jesus died and rose again, it was a demonstration of the righteousness of God. He didn't just ask us to step out and say, I hope that I go to heaven when I die. He said, hey, I'm going to bring him back from the dead. Is that a powerful enough evidence for you to believe and trust in me that when I say that you will have eternal life if you believe that you will? Are you willing to believe on the basis of what happened? And not just by blind faith. In fact, Paul goes so far in 1 Corinthians 15 as to tie the resurrection to everything. He's saying, if this did not happen, let's go home. Let's go home. Because if it didn't actually happen, then God didn't keep His promise, and God's not trustworthy. But if it did happen, then we can take God at His word. When it comes to the resurrection, and we're going to do someday, we're going to do a whole semester-long class on the evidence for the resurrection, but I'm going to summarize it for you here. All scholars who've studied the resurrection, or I should say the vast majority of scholars, 
liberal, conservative, Christian, non-Christian, Jewish scholars, all of them who have studied, or I should say the vast majority who have studied this, agree on four historical facts about the resurrection. Here it is. They all agree that Jesus of Nazareth lived. About 10, 15 years ago, that was being contended. Did Jesus even exist? Even the most liberal scholars are like, yeah, he existed. We know that. We know it. They all agree that Jesus was executed under Pontius Pilate. They all agree that he was buried. And they all agree that his disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe and proclaim his resurrection from the dead. They all agree that these four things are historically, they're set. They happened. So the question for us is then, what best explains those facts? No one's arguing those facts. What's the best explanation? And again, there's been a lot of explanations offered that just don't cut mustard compared to the explanation that God raised Jesus from the dead. It's the best explanation. It's the only one that explains all of those facts as good or better than any other explanation that's been offered. Down throughout all of history, by the way. So what? So we can say, cool, we have a good foundation for the resurrection. Hey, let's get some bad thinking out of our minds. Um, So what? What am I supposed to do with that? A couple things. I need you to understand this. What we believe is unique amongst all world religions, amongst all belief systems, in two ways. We are the only religion, the only belief system, the only faith, whatever you want to call it, that rests entirely on a miracle claim. We push all in on the resurrection. Now, there are other faiths that rely on miracle claims. Islam, Mormonism, they rely on miracle claims. But here's the second part. We are the only one that rests entirely on a miracle claim and is historically falsifiable. I didn't say false, I said falsifiable. We push it out there and we say, test it, see if it happened. You'll find that it did. Islam rests on a miracle claim, but what happened between the Prophet Muhammad and Gabriel in that cave, no one will ever know if it happened or not. It's not falsifiable. You cannot be proven false. So who are you to say? Mormonism. No one knows what, whether that conversation really happened between Joseph Smith and those angels because no one else was around to see it. And then the tablets disappeared. No, it can't be proven false. Ours could. Find me the body of Jesus and we all go home. We have put our faith out there and we have anchored it to history and said, prove it didn't happen. Please, I dare you. But you will find that it did. And if it did, it's of infinite importance. We have made our faith testable. Because of that, we have a great foundation for our faith. Do you understand that what we have, you can go to, you don't need to say, well, I just believe it's true. You can say, it happened. Here are the facts. How do you explain that? What do you do with that? And you challenge them instead of us always being on our heels because, well, it's not science. I can't prove it. Maybe it's just true for me. We can push the ball into their court and we can say, I know this happened. It's a fact of history. So what are you going to do about it now that it's a fact of history? We have every reason to be confident is what I'm trying to tell you. Prince of Egypt... Anyone seen that movie? So, great movie. Uh, very powerful in some scenes. But there's a song in there 
where someone, I don't remember who, sings that there can be miracles when you believe, or if you believe, I don't remember how it's worded, you realize that this is exactly the cultural assumption that we've been talking about up to this point. It is Morgan Freeman's definition of faith. You just throw yourself out there, maybe a miracle will happen. You need to understand that the way the Bible presents faith and miracles and ties them together, it is not there, will, there can be miracles when you believe. God is telling us today there have been miracles. Will you believe? And that's the same question that we have to answer and everyone else in the world. There have been miracles. There will be miracles. Will you believe? On the basis of what God has done, He is trustworthy. On the basis of what God is doing here in this group, God is trustworthy. On the basis of what He's about to do, we know He's trustworthy because of all that He has done up to this point. In our church, in our lives, in the history of our faith. We need to trust. We need to have faith. Not in the sense that we step out, but in that we say, God did that. That's real. So I can trust God for whatever I'm going through now, for whatever I can be, uh, whatever I need Him for now. John understood this when he wrote in 1 John. And I'll leave you with this. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And, in, and if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. God wants us to know that what we believe is trustworthy. He wants us to know that we can trust Him, not on the basis of stepping out and hoping, not on the basis of, I wish I may, I wish I might, not on the basis of, it's how I was raised, I guess I'll believe it, on the basis of looking back through the corridors of history and seeing all the times that God has acted, and we can know that He has acted. And on that basis, we can say, I trust you, because every chance you have been given to prove yourself reliable and trustworthy, you have. It's no wonder God gets angry at unbelief. Because it's all there. Why do you see it and not believe? It makes sense. Are you confident? If you're not, read more. Study more. Learn more. Because the more you study, the more you read, the more you learn, the more confident you will be. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity. I'm so grateful that you have given us such confidence in what we believe, that we can know that what we believe is true because it is based in history, that we don't have to apologize or wrestle over a matter of feeling over a matter of preference, God, but that you have so tied your work on the cross and the resurrection and all that you have done throughout human history to history, that, God, we just have to point back and remember what you've done. 
God, may you help us with our short memories. May you grant us remembrance of how trustworthy and reliable you are. And on that basis, God, may we place our faith in you. You have done miracles. And we believe that you are about to do miracles here in this church. In giving us a place of our own. In giving us an impact in this community that we have not had up to this point. You have proven yourself trustworthy, God. May we trust you moving forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, could I invite you to stand for just a moment? I just have a couple very important announcements that I need to communicate to all of you. So stretch. That's it. There you go. Um, Wednesday night, Bible study. Would you please just be in prayer that more and more people will come out on Wednesday night to our Bible study? We have youth on Wednesday night. We have children's on Wednesday night. And we have something for the adults on Wednesday night. And this Wednesday, we're going to be talking about serving the Lord and how reasonable it is that if God does exist and if he's real, that our lives are given in service for him. How's your service for God? We're going to talk about that. Um, The one big thing coming up is the weekend of the 24th and 25th of September. Pastor Miguel Olachea of Mexicali, Mexico, an evangelist and pastor, will be here the entire weekend ministering to us. And Saturday morning, the 24th on Saturday, we are having something for the men and women of, of the community. And it's going to be at the same place so that men and women can come together. The men will go to one side. The women will go to another side. There will be breakfast provided. It will be from 9 o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock. It's mostly going to be just fellowship and breakfast, but for the men, Pastor Olachea and myself are going to just share a few encouraging words to the men. And then on the women's side, after their breakfast and fellowship time, then uh, my wife Lisa and Carmen, Pastor Olachea's wife, will be sharing a few encouraging things to the women. As of now, this is just for the men and women. There will be no child care that we know of provided on Saturday morning. So I would just encourage you, if you have children and you want to come, use that as a priority to get a babysitter for a couple hours on Saturday morning and be here. Because on Saturday night, the 24th, we're having a service right here, strengthening the family at 7 o'clock here in the auditorium. And child care will be provided that evening, as well as obviously Sunday morning for our normal Sunday morning service. I say that to give you one more encouragement, I guess. Would any of you Consider, pray about, think about being part of uh, Crystal's team that weekend to help out with our child care. We're expecting huge turnouts on Saturday night and Sunday morning, and we're going to have lots of visitors. So she needs people who are willing to step up and be over there on Saturday night or Sunday. My thing is, I'd like to just say it this way. If you can help us out Sunday, then don't worry about Saturday. Let's get other people to help out on Saturday. So that those of you that help out on Sunday could be here Saturday night. And those of you that want to and can help out on Saturday night, then could come Sunday morning. But please talk to Crystal. If you can help her out, I know she would greatly appreciate it. Because we are anticipating a really big turnout that weekend. Hope you have a fabulous holiday weekend, especially Labor Day tomorrow. God bless you. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next week.